As we get ready to dive in tonight's message, I pray and I hope that it will be beneficial to you as we continue on and just bringing forth God's word uh, during this time. So as we get ready to dive in tonight, make sure that you have your Bibles with you, you've got something to write with, and now let's dive into tonight's message. going on friends man i hope you guys had a wonderful easter i hope you practiced some safe social distancing during that time had a wonderful easter meal spending time with family celebrating our risen king proving once and for all that jesus is our messiah that the empty borrowed tomb uh, is just that that is empty that death couldn't hold down the creator of life and darkness could not extinguish the light of the world. Man, we are continuing on in our series that we kicked off last week called Unbelievable. And uh, this whole series is focusing around stories that you find in the Bible that seem so unbelievable that there's no possible way that they could actually be true. And really, we come into this world with a lot of people that that's the reason why they can't believe the stories that we find in the believable, because they are so unbelievable at times. And last week, we kicked off this series looking at the unbelievable prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that proved to all of us that he is exactly who he says that he is, that he is God. He was the promised Messiah, the whole reason why we just celebrated Easter this past Sunday. And what we even looked at last week was how unbelievable those prophecies were that Jesus fulfilled, that even though they prove that he is who he says that he is, what we looked at was that there are still people that man, they're just not sure that they can believe everything that they find, especially in the young adult world. And, and what's the reason why? Because it seems like the Bible is pretty straightforward about that. And the reason why is because of how young adults view the accuracy and the authority of the Bible. Last week, I gave you some statistics as to what young adults believe about Jesus, and today I want to give you some statistics from a Barna study from 2009 on what young adults ages 18 to 25 believe about the authority of the Bible. The Barna group asked young adults uh, whether or not they believe that the uh, Bible was the actual Word of God. 27% believe that it was, and 25% believe that it's not. Young adults also uh, said that 67% believe that the Bible is less sacred than other uh, uh, religious texts that are out there. 30% believe that the Bible is completely accurate. I want you to keep in mind that's 30% of the young adults that they interview believe that the Bible is accurate. They believe that the Bible is the Word of God. 56% believe that the Bible teaches the same spiritual truths as other sacred texts. We'll come back to that one. 
young adults are uh, more likely to be skeptic of whether or not you can trust the original manuscripts of the Bible. And uh, young adults in the study, they found that young adults are less likely to spend at least 15 minutes a week, a week, you guys, diving into God's Word and being in prayer. The statistics that we looked at last week, the statistics that I just shared with you guys, they seem unbelievable, but they're, they're true. So what's unbelievable about those statistics is it seems that uh, the Bible is pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Again, if we look at some of those questions that the Barnard Group asked and we compare that in light of what Scripture says, we can kind of see what the Bible actually has to say about itself. You see, when they ask the question whether or not the Bible is the actual, accurate, sacred, inspired Word of God, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training up in righteousness. Pretty straightforward. When they ask the question, does the Bible teach the same sacred truths as other beliefs, can we pause on this one for a second? Because think of it this way. Of course the Bible doesn't teach the same sacred truths because the other uh, texts, religious texts that people believe in, they don't even teach the same sacred truths as each other. Last summer we did a series called Compare and Contrast, and we looked at what Christianity had to teach compared to the other religions in the world today. And what we saw, just even when it comes to what other people believe about afterlife, there's various uh, opinions on just that alone. So when other religions can't even match up with each other, line up with each other on, on what the afterlife looks like, then how can they believe, how can anybody believe that the Bible teaches the same things as other texts? Because remember, there are people out there that they believe that you will be reincarnated and you'll have to do this life over and over and over again. And when we're living in the world today with the pandemic of coronavirus, is this really something that you want to do over and over and over again? You see, we have a world that would love to believe that the Bible teaches all-inclusiveness. That, that uh, you don't have to believe exactly what the other person next to you believes because we have a God that is for you, not against you. And yes, the Bible teaches that, but when you read just even what Jesus says himself, what we actually end up finding out is that the Bible and Christianity and, and God, Jesus, they're actually a little bit more exclusive than they are inclusive. Let me share with you what Jesus says himself. John 14, verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, that seems pretty straightforward to me, and yet 56% of young adults today would rather believe in this idea of universalism, that we have a God that, one, he couldn't bear, and two, he wouldn't dare send anybody to hell because he loves everybody so much that He'll just welcome anybody in to heaven despite their own personal belief. But again, if we look at what Jesus says himself in the Bible, Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. You guys, there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and people are really going to one place or the other, as unbelievable as that may be. Leslie uh, Schmucker, she said this, she says, Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. 
There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell. You guys, the fact that Jesus taught on the reality of hell more than he taught on the reality of heaven is unbelievable, but it's true. You see, what we have to do is we have to start looking and start reading through the Bible with the lens of history rather than the lens of fantasy. Because when we do that, what ends up happening is that we then see God's holy, accurate, sacred, inspired word for what it actually is and what it reveals to us. And we see it through a whole new light. And then even when we read the unbelievable but true stories in the Bible, what we'll see is that in the pages we find this amazing, life-giving, life-changing, and life-saving text. So all that being said, as we get ready to dive into our topic tonight, I think that this would be a good spot to pause for a quick second and pray before we dive into our unbelievable but true story for this evening. So you guys pray with me. Father, as we get ready to dive into your word tonight, I pray the same prayer for all of us that David prayed for himself. God, search our hearts, God. Reveal to us areas where we are having trouble taking you at your word. As the father of the sick boy said to Jesus, God, help our unbelief tonight. Jesus, we need you in this time. Though our gathering looks much different these days, you are still more than capable of bringing an awakening to this world through your church. Teach us at least one good thing about you in this time. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start off by sharing a story with you. Uh, something that you guys not, might not know about me that's a little known fact is I actually love fishing. If I were to be more specific, I love fly fishing. Uh, it's something, it was a passion of my dad that got passed down to me. And my dad shared many, many wonderful stories and memories with each other from all of our times going out fishing. Uh, but I remember this one trip that my dad and I took when I was uh, a young boy. My dad and I took my uncle out fishing in New Mexico, and we went to a lake out there called Eagle's Nest. And we got up early in the morning, a freezing cold morning, and we went over to Eagle's Nest, and we set up on the side of the cliff, and we threw out our fishing lines, and we began our day. And I remember on this trip something that really caught my attention about my uncle. You see, my dad and I, we used the normal bait that anybody would use. We used salmon eggs, we used worms, we used power bait. But as my uncle is sitting next to me, I watch him pick up a can of corn out of his tackle box, open up the can of corn, and start baiting his hook with the corn and then throwing that line out into the water. And I remember saying to myself, Man, who uses corn to catch fish? Now, to my amazement, I'm watching as my uncle's fishing line, the bobber at the end of that line is indicating that he's actually got fish that are attracted to the bait and they're biting onto the hook. Now, what was funny about all this was my uncle's getting bites, but he's not catching anything because every time that he goes to set the hook, the fish that he was attempting to catch would always break the line and they always got away. And my uncle was getting really frustrated. In fact, he even said, I, can, I know that I know that I know that this is the same fish that keeps getting off the line because he said it was a big fish. So as the day was going on, it became really funny to my dad and myself because my dad and I are catching fish and my uncle keeps losing these fish and just wasn't landing anything. 
So you fast forward to the end of the day, and uh, as we're getting ready to pack up and head home, uh, at one point I noticed that my bobber at the end of my line is indicating that I have a fish on. So I pick up my rod and I set the hook and I begin to reel in the fish. Now, my dad, he noticed something about the, the rod that I was using. He was noticing the bend in the pole, and my dad says to me, I, I think you got a pretty good sized fish on the line. And as this epic battle was going on between me and this fish, I finally landed the fish. And you guys, it was, it was a chunker of a trout. Now, it wasn't like a prized possession fish or a world record-breaking fish or anything, but it was a good-sized fish. And my uncle, he looks at me dead in the eye and serious. Uh, he says to me, that's my fish. And I'm sitting there going, what do you mean it's your fish? And he says, that's the fish that I've been trying to catch all day that keeps taking my corn and gets away. Now, in the dating world, we have a phrase I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with, and it's the phrase, there's plenty of fish in the sea. So the probability of the fish that I had just landed being the same fish that was tormenting my uncle all morning long were improbable. It was most likely not true. However, the fish that we were catching that day, they were dinner for us that night when we got home. So as we were catching these fish, we were cleaning them and gutting them, Sorry to all you animal lovers out there. And uh, would you guess what was inside my fish? Corn. You guys, it proved for once and for all that the fish that was tormenting my uncle all morning long was the fish that I had just caught. Now, you want to talk about family drama. This is a story that has been shared within our family for quite some time. But, you guys, that's a fish tale, and it's a good one. But the Bible, as unbelievable as that story is, the Bible is filled with fish tales of its own, and there's one that we're all familiar with, and it's found in the Old Testament, and it's found in the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, I would highly recommend that you turn there. But I'm assuming that when you hear the name Jonah, what immediately comes to mind is this unbelievable event that takes place in the book of this guy Jonah surviving in the belly of a fish for three days. You guys, it seems so unrealistic. It seems so made up that it seems like something that Disney would think up. But unbelievable, it's true. So, but while it is while it is easy to get caught up in the unbelievable event uh, of this guy surviving in the belly of a fish for three days, there's actually many more unbelievable things that take place in the story of Jonah. And the first one that we see actually starts right at the very beginning of the book. So if you're turned there, you can follow along on the screen, but this is what it says. Jonah chapter 1, starting verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amenitai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. So right there from the very get-go of this book, we are introduced to this unbelievable request from God to Jonah, who is a prophet of God. So what's so unbelievable about this request of going to Nineveh? Well, you have to understand who the Ninevites are. You see, Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time. And Assyria is the greatest enemy and the greatest threat to the Israel people. Now, the other thing that makes this unbelievable that God was said in Jonah to the Ninevites is the fact that what Nineveh and the Assyrians were known for, they were actually known for their brutality. You see, uh, Assyrians used to flail people alive. 
And what I mean by that is that they would rip the skin off of their enemies while they're still alive, exposing muscle and nerve uh, to, to the openness. And they would do this while people were alive. So they were feeling every bit of centimeter of skin being ripped off of them. Something else that the Assyrians were known for was that they would take the skulls of their enemies and they would build these walls, these mounds of skulls. And this is what you would enter into all these cities seeing. You, they put their brutality on display as a welcome mat for all visitors to the Assyrian Empire. So now if you're Jonah and God calls you to go uh, preach against your enemies who are known for these things, what would you do? Because if I'm Jonah and God asked me to do that, I'm saying, you got to send somebody else. That's not my scene. Jonah, on the other hand, he takes a different approach. He actually runs away from his calling. We find this in verse 3. It says this. It says, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down, in, uh, down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. So Jonah did whatever he could do to run away from God's calling on his life. Even, even he tried to run away from God. You see, Jonah is in Joppa. So from Joppa to Nineveh is 500 miles. From Joppa to Tarshish is over 2,500 miles across the sea. Jonah was going to do anything and everything he could to not only get away from going to Nineveh, but he was trying to run away from God. And so he takes this unbelievable boat ride. So what was unbelievable about this boat ride? Well, first of all, Jonah had placed his hope and his security in the ship. So while he's out on the sea, God sends this storm and threatens to break apart this new hope, this false hope, this false security that Jonah had placed in this ship. The second unbelievable that we, thing that we see with Jonah is his theology. Again, keep in mind, he's a prophet of the Lord. So Jonah has this understanding that God is the creator of land and sea. In fact, in Jonah chapter 1, what you see is the captain of the ship comes down to the bottom of the ship and finds Jonah asleep and tells him to get up and start praying to his God uh, for fear that the ship was going to sink. And uh, it ends up coming out that Jonah is the cause of the storm because he's running away from God. And the people, the crew of the ship, ask Jonah, who is your God? And Jonah says, well, I'm a Hebrew. My God is the creator of land and sea. And the storm has come upon all of us because of my disobedience. Now, if I had more time tonight, I would talk about how your disobedience to God can bring storms upon the people around you. You know, when you have a porn addiction, how that can destroy your marriage. Or when you are married and you end up having an adulterous affair, how that can ruin the trust and the hope and the joy and the confidence that your spouse has in God. But again, that's a message for a different time. But again, look at the theology of Jonah in all of this. He's a Hebrew that knows that his God is the creator of the land and the sea. And for whatever reason, Jonah thinks that he could escape that God by escaping on the sea. His theology is a little wickety-whack at this point. The third unbelievable thing that we see uh, uh, is Jonah's fix to the problem. You see, Jonah tells the crew, hey, if you guys want to save your life, you're going to have to sacrifice me in order for that to happen, and I'm willing to lay down my life. Throw me overboard. And that's exactly what happens. And that's what leads to the 
famous, unbelievable event of the book of Jonah. Because at the end of chapter 1, it says that God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then chapter 2 opens up, and Jonah spends these three days. We see what's going on for these three days, and Jonah is just in prayer to the Lord. After three days in the fish, God commands the fish to vomit Jonah back up on dry ground. So we pick up the story in chapter 3. Because God tells Jonah to return, to go back and go to Nineveh. And this is what it says, chapter 3, starting verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days Nineveh will be demolished. So Jonah comes to this massive city, and it's a city so large that the Bible says it takes three days to get through it when you're walking through. And Jonah comes and he brings this this message from God to the Ninevite people. And all he says, the only message that Jonah brings is, You're all doomed. You're gonna die. There's no message of hope. There's no call to repentance. Just... This is it. You guys are done for. God is going to destroy you. Now, if I'm trying to reach out to a lost person, that's not the approach that I'm going to take. (laughs) There's no reason that anybody would give their life over to the Lord for the sake of saying, hey, God's going to destroy you. So this isn't the approach that I would take that Jonah did. However, as we continue reading on in chapter 3, it's actually pretty effective. Picking it up in verse 5, look what happens. It says, Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways, from his wrongdoing. Are you crazy right now? Like this, like a message of doom and gloom, and the king is saying, turn from your evil ways. And he says in verse 9, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that he will not perish, so we will not perish. And God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. You guys, this is unbelievable. A whole city known and a people group known for their brutality and their wickedness have given their lives over to the Lord. This is a yay God moment if I've ever seen one. And if I were to be writing this book, and and if I were to be putting this into the Bible, this is where the story, in my opinion, ends. Because God won. People have given their lives over to the Lord. Yet this is not where the book of Jonah concludes. Because the book of Jonah is not about the people of Nineveh. The book of Jonah is about how God is pursuing a rebellious prophet and how God is working in his life. So the story continues. You see, what should have been this joyous occasion of the people coming to know the Lord continues in chapter 4, and this is what we see. It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? 
That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You guys, this is the heart of Jonah's rebellion right here. You see, Jonah knew that God was rich in love and mercy. Jonah knew that God didn't need Jonah to reach out and save the people of Nineveh. God could have done that without him. But Jonah knew that God could have accomplished all these things even without Jonah to save Nineveh. So then the question is, then what's the problem? Why is this even part of the Bible? Why is this in the text? And the reason why this is in here is because Jonah hates the Assyrians. Jonah would rather see them destroyed than God save them, than God showing mercy on them. The fact that God spared the people of Nineveh led to Jonah pleading to God that for him to just have his life come to an end. And he pleads this not once, but twice. And overall, in these four chapters of this book, Jonah actually... Uh, uh, asked for his life to be taken three different times. You see, the question then becomes, how does God deal with a person like that? How does God deal with a person that would rather see their enemies uh, completely demolished and destroyed and would rather uh, be dead versus their enemies uh, having a good thing? Well, twice God addresses Jonah and his anger the first time is in verse 5 of this, of this chapter that we're in, when God asked Jonah, Man, is, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? To which Jonah doesn't give a response. In fact, what we see is Jonah heads east of the city, and he kind of posts up shop outside of the city, and it says that he fixed his gaze upon Nineveh, waiting to see what would happen. And I think what Jonah is hoping for is, I'm, I think Jonah's hoping that God's going to change his mind again. I think Jonah's sitting there going, man, these people are way too evil. They're not Jewish, so they're not God's chosen people. I think God's going to change his mind again, and I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to watch the city burn. I think that's what Jonah is hoping for. But in the waiting, Jonah is sitting out underneath the hot sun, and God actually appoints a plant to grow to provide shelter to, uh, to serve Jonah, to save him from his anguish, from his troubles. And then it says in verse 6 that Jonah was greatly pleased by this. However, God then the next day by dawn appoints this worm to come and eat and destroy this plant that was providing Jonah shelter. So now Jonah's back underneath the hot sun again. And it says that he was so uncomfortable that he almost fainted, to which then he then pleads again to God, man, just, God, just take my life from me at this point to which God then again addresses Jonah's anger. And this is what it says in verse 9. It says, Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh? which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? You guys, the book of Jonah concludes in a very interesting way. It concludes with God asking Jonah a question, 
that never gets answered. God asks, why is it okay for Jonah to be upset about a plant that he didn't grow, he didn't take care of, but it's not okay for God to care about the lost and the broken? You see, God's asking Jonah, if you didn't take care of this plant, why can't I care for the people that I created, the people that I love so much that I'm sending you to? Jonah, why is it not okay for me to love people even though they are jacked up, messed up, and broken? The book of Jonah is a book that, as we as readers are progressing and watching how Jonah reacts to this call that God is giving him, it causes us to reflect on the exact same question that God asked Jonah. So, are you okay with your enemies having a relationship with the Lord? Are you okay with that boss that you don't like having a personal relationship with God? Are you okay with your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend being pursued by God? Are you okay with God wanting to have an intimate relationship with maybe that family member, that parent that abandoned you as a kid and left your family high and dry? Are you okay with God wanting to save and reach out to the person who's misused you and abused you? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with your enemies being reached by God and God wanting a personal relationship with them? It's easy to believe that God wants to have a relationship with us, right? Because we're all good people. And it's easy for us to pray for our politicians that God would have a personal relationship with them because that's what we want for our politicians who are leading our government, right? We want God to be leading them in the decisions that they're making. But when your enemy walks in through the doors of the church so they can have a relationship with God, that one's a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow, isn't it? Because it's, it's hard for us to believe that they could turn their life around. It's hard for us to believe that God would want to have a relationship with them because we put our feelings and our emotions of that person onto God and believe that God can't want a person like that. Look at what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 43. It says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? The unbelievable but true story about Jonah isn't about a guy who survived in the belly of a fish for three days. The unbelievable but true story of Jonah is that God would choose regular people like you and me to be the ones to introduce our enemies to Jesus so they can have a personal relationship with God, so they could be saved from the wrath of God and, and not spend an eternity in hell, but spend eternity in heaven. You see, what we have to remember is when it comes to the story of Jonah, the story of Jonah is actually the story about us. It's the story about how we were once enemies to God. And even while we were still enemies to God, God stopped at nothing to pursue a relationship with us so that we would be saved from that wrath so we could have eternity in heaven with God for all time. The true story of Jonah is about how God will use ordinary people like you and me to reach out to the lost and broken. So the question that God asks Jonah or even the call that God places on Jonah to get up and preach to the enemies 
That's what God is asking every single one of us to do. So the question that I leave you with tonight is this. When God is calling you, and He is calling you, to reach out to your enemies, will you obey that call? Or will you follow in the footsteps of Jonah and run? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this day. God, we thank you for this teaching. God, we thank you so much that you, are, that you are a God that loves us so much that even while we were still enemies to you, God, you did not want to see any one of us perish. But God, that you stopped at nothing to pursue a relationship with us. So God, I pray that as children of yours, that's exactly the same heart posture and attitude that we would adopt, that we would see every person that we lock eyes with and every person that we bump elbows with as a person that matters to you, whether or not that person has heard us before in the past or presently. But God, that we know that we know that we know that there really is a heaven, there really is a hell, and people are spending place in one place or the other. And God, that it would become our desperate desire for people to spend eternity in heaven with you. So God, I pray that we would uh, love in the way that you loved us, God, that people would come to know you uh, through how we love other people. And Father, we just pray that you would work in us. And God, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen.